When the gambler made his way towards the hotel, he did so with a purpose, with a score to settle. One that was over a year in the making. You see, his brother had been killed, murdered, to hear some tell it, by a man of the law. And the gambler, usually not the vocal type, uncharacteristically let it be known that he intended to kill his brother's assassin on sight, badge or no badge. So, when the two men finally came face to face there in Trinidad, tensions were high, to say the least. The gambler, however, did not immediately draw his revolver. Guess he figured he'd size his opponent up first, maybe get a handle on what kind of cards he was holding. And believe it or not, the two men actually sat down together there at the Armijo boarding house for the better part of two hours. The exact details as to what was discussed we can only speculate, but the story goes that when the duo emerged, they shook hands and simply went their separate ways. The gambler, when later pressed, would explain that he now had a better understanding of what had happened with his brother and that the matter was closed. And that's about all he had to say about that. You see, the gambler wasn't predisposed to idle chatter, nor was he inclined to making friends. Hell, the only real friends he'd ever had were his brother and his mama, and they was both dead and gone. So, as soon as he could, he drifted. Colorado, back down to New Mexico, places like Las Vegas and Silver City, over Arizona way to Tombstone, further east El Paso, never staying too long in one place, never putting down roots. And, as I alluded to, the gambler wasn't much given to loose talk, so when he did speak, his words had weight to him. Like the time he prevented the lynching of a fellow card sharp by the name of Doc Kane. Or another instance in yet another saloon where his calm words helped avert gunplay when the free flow of spirits caused things to get a little heated. Other than that, though, the gambler really didn't do much of note. At least nothing that would make the history books. He lived his life, as did many of his kind, silently and in the shadows not leaving a mark or desiring to do so. Still, though, things change, and not even a stoic gambler can halt the path of progress. Wasn't long before he even stopped wearing a gun, in public at least. He still went healed on occasion. Hell, you'd be a fool not to do so in the dark dives where he earned his keep. He just didn't make it so obvious. But time marches on, right? As the gambler grew older and grayer, the dusty streets were paved over, and the automobile replaced the horse and buggy. He witnessed the turn of the century, the invention of the aeroplane, the refrigerator, silent films, the radio. He watched as the broken young men returned from the Great War and observed the flappers of the Roaring Twenties, and he saw the beginnings of the Great Depression. But despite living through all that history, I gotta wonder how often, if ever, the gambler thought of his brother. I mean, he had to, right? One doesn't simply forget a shadow that large. And I can't help but to contemplate on whether or not the gambler wished he had said a few more words to his brother the last time they saw each other, decades prior, on that little ranch. You see, when the gambler's mother died, both he and his brother were abandoned by their stepfather. The boys, orphans, were then placed in separate homes. And the gambler, without much of a parental figure, unfortunately found his way to the dark side rather quickly. Started running errands in saloons and brothels as early as the age of 11. And by the time he had reached his teens, he had already learned how to spot a fish at the poker table and was even known to frequent the local opium dens. As such, when the smallpox outbreak occurred, it was probably a bit of a blessing. Got the young gambler out of town and onto a nearby ranch where he was able to enjoy a somewhat quieter life, however temporary. Working out in the fresh air, feeling the clean sun upon his face. Engaging in honest labor and sweating out the impurities, and hopefully a few of the bad memories. And, like I said, it was there on that little ranch on the Membrace River that he last saw his brother. The gambler and an acquaintance by the name of Chauncey Truesdale were milking a cow when they spotted three strangers approaching on horseback, two of which appeared to be Indians. 
Not leaving anything to chance, the gambler shucked his Winchester and levered around. The good gambler, you see, never relies on chance. That's for suckers. And our gambler, despite his faults, weren't no sucker. Thankfully, in this instance, his precautions were not necessary. Hold on now, don't you know your own brother? The gambler's prodigal sibling hollered as he galloped closer, a crooked grin on his peach fuzz-covered face. Gambler's brother always seemed to be smiling, even after all that had happened. The two would spend the night catching up there at the ranch, and as far as I know, that's the last time the gambler ever again saw one of his blood relatives, at least on this side of the veil. He'd eventually find his way to Denver, Colorado, where he'd settle, or should I say sink, continuing to eke out a living at the poker tables as well as any other odd jobs he could find, up to and including working as a cook and a bartender. A quote-unquote colorless figure, as one newspaperman would recall, an old relic that nobody paid much attention to, but I guess that's the way the gambler liked it. Shortly before his death, he'd be interviewed by the aforementioned reporter, Edwin Hoover, who described his subject as both friendless and cantankerous. And when a colleague pointed out just who the gambler's brother had been, the unimpressed newspaperman simply replied, Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Not many, I suppose, including the gambler himself, or so it would seem. I mean, so efficient was he at playing things close to the vest that when he finally died, at nearly 70 years of age, in the year 1930, nobody even came to claim his body. As such, the gambler's remains were handed over to the Colorado Medical School, who I'm sure had no idea who they had gotten their hands on. There's a report out there somewhere indicating that whatever remained of the gambler after being dissected and prodded was buried, but where he was laid to rest is anybody's guess. Kind of ironic, considering that we don't even know where his much more famous brother is buried either, at least not the exact location. Two floods, one in 1889 and the other in 1904, took care of that washing away all the headstones in that particular cemetery and unceremoniously relocating quite a few cadavers in the process. And although some old-timers were called in to locate the precise location of the grave, they were relying on fallible memories. Sure, there's a tombstone there now, surrounded by a big iron cage to dissuade any would-be trophy hunters, but we don't know for sure who rests underneath it, despite the pleadings of more than a few who would love to start digging and find out. Not sure how I feel about that. Selfishly, I'd love to find out who's down there, but mostly I figure maybe it's better to let both the gambler and his brother rest, wherever they are. That said, I do tend to think, or at least hope, that the gambler's final chapter has yet to be written. That's kind of how history works, right? There's always new discoveries to be made. And I am confident that as time goes by, we'll eventually uncover new information regarding both he and his brother. And maybe even their mama too, that jolly Irish lady full of fun who died too soon. Far too soon. But not before delivering her two sons to the territory of New Mexico, where they'd both be shaped by times and circumstances that no mother could predict. One, Joseph, or Josie, as he was called as a child, would eventually become a gambler and live the long, obscure life I briefly covered, dying penniless there in Denver. His older brother Henry, however, was a much different story. His time on Earth was brief, but anything but boring. But you know that already, don't you? And you probably already know that the gambler's brother Henry went by many other names as well. Names you've probably heard of, like Little Casino, or Chavato, Antrim, McCarthy, Bonnie, or as the gambler knew him, Big Brother. Thought I'd share this little story with you. Hope you found it as interesting as I did. 
A lot of people don't know that Billy the Kid had a brother, and a lot of people don't know he led such a, what I consider, interesting life. Full disclosure, I did exercise a little bit of creative license, but I think that much is obvious. You know me, I gotta channel my inner micro on occasion. But for the most part, it is factual, at least if the scant resources available on Joseph Antrim are to be believed. He was indeed the younger brother of the infamous Billy the Kid, possibly just a half-brother, but we do know they definitely shared the same mother, Catherine McCarthy, and the same no-good stepdaddy, William Antrim. Joseph really was a gambler, really spent time in Tombstone and Silver City and Las Vegas and all those other places I mentioned. And he really did prevent both a lynching and a shooting. And yes, the word is he did vow to kill Pat Garrett. But when the two men sat down together, he changed his mind, saying that the matter was now settled. And boy, what I wouldn't give to have been a fly on the wall during that conversation. Unlike his older brother, there's no indication that Joseph Antrim was ever in a gunfight. Although he was arrested and fined in Tombstone for engaging in a bout of fisticuffs with a hotel porter. Still, though, considering the places he plied his trade in the late 1870s and the decade that followed, I think it's safe to say that our gambler witnessed more than his fair share of excitement. I'm sure there were quite a few hair-raising moments, and I'm positive he brushed shoulders with much more notorious characters. I mean, the dude was residing in Las Vegas, New Mexico at the same time as Doc Holliday, Hoodoo Brown, Dave Rudabaugh, and Mysterious Dave Mather, just to name a few. Now, as far as Joseph being a loner, friendless, and cantankerous and all that, Numerous sources claim that the man never married or had children, and that he was nothing like his outgoing, charismatic brother. However, it does appear that Joseph possibly could have taken a brief time out at being a bachelor around the age of 28. Shout out to Stig Osgard for this next bit of information. According to him, a Joseph Antrim and a Jenny Stone tied the knot in Pueblo in December of 1891. Mr. Oscar's article, which I'll link to in this episode's show notes, continues as follows. Quote, at any rate, the marriage was not a successful one, and on February 25th, 1894, Joseph and Jenny were involved in a serious confrontation, which led to Joseph's arrest for kidnapping. According to the Rocky Mountain News of April 5th, 1894, Joseph, concerned about the disreputable surroundings in which his stepson Claude was being kept by his mother, went to Pueblo from Denver and abducted the child. Then he went back to Denver and enrolled the child in a private school. Jenny Antrim, in turn, swore out a warrant charging Joseph with kidnapping her child. Joseph, in response, said that his wife had refused to reform and was not a proper person to have custody of the boy. End quote. Now, I found this intriguing. That bit at the beginning of my story about Joseph the gambler working in saloons at the age of 11 and spending time in opium dens in his teens, that's all true as well. And you and me both know that that's not the ideal setting for a child. Joseph, lacking both parents, was forced to grow up far too soon in one of the roughest environments imaginable. And while I'm sure those sporting gals and the high rollers and the bartenders were nice enough to young Joseph, that's still no place for a kid. I gotta imagine that Joseph the adult didn't like seeing the same thing happening to his stepson or former stepson, and he made moves to put the youngster back on the right path. If I'm correct in this assumption, and I'll admit it is an assumption, then I think it's commendable. It says a lot more about our gambler, who he really was, than that damn reporter did. Speaking of which, how frustrating is that? Here that newspaperman had a living source of history right in front of him, a source who, if he were somehow alive today, would be pestered non-stop by historians and journalists, his every word recorded and archived. Obviously, there's the fact he was Billy the Kid's brother. That alone is reason enough. He could have filled in so many blanks. Bob Bowes Bell of True West Magazine had this to say, quote, 
Billy aficionados around the world would sincerely like to get their hands on Mr. Hoover's neck and ring it good. With the death of Joseph McCarty Antrim, the door closed probably forever on the answers to so many burning questions. End quote. But it's not just that. Joe Antrim was one of the last of the breed of men who could tell you how it felt to walk the streets of Tombstone, back when it was filled to the brim with men who'd just as soon as shoot you as look at you. He knew what it was like to ride the high desert when there was still a very real threat of losing one's scalp. And although he was no shootist, he surely, to quote the great Guy Clark, remembered the smell of the black powder smoke and the stand in the street at the turn of a joke. Joseph posted his blinds and antes and beer joints that were frequented by some of the most notorious killers the West had ever known, and he outlived all of them. Yet, in his own time, nobody cared. Which, I guess, is a good reminder that history is all around us, even now, and with each generation's passing, more and more stories will be lost forever. Here's a little something to ponder. When Joe died in 1930, he was a lot younger than most present-day veterans of the Vietnam War. That's how little time had passed between the days of the Wild West and the start of the Great Depression. And as of this recording, we've only got around 200,000 veterans of the Second World War still alive. But hell, if a man was 19 years old on D-Day, he'd be 97 right now. According to the National World War II Museum, we lose an average of 234 veterans each day. Veterans of the Second World War. You do the math. I mean, it won't be long till there's nobody left to tell us how cold it felt in Bastion or what it was like when those gates dropped on Omaha Beach. Thankfully, we're a little bit better nowadays at collecting and preserving these stories, but I'll say it yet again, man. If you've got a grandparent or a great-grandparent still alive, sit them down and talk to them, interview them, record it. Even if you just use the voice recorder on your cell phone, they've got stories to tell. And one of these days when you're old and boring, you're going to wish you had those stories to look back on. And let's face it, it's a hell of a lot more interesting than anything you're going to find on the so-called History Channel. Alright, I'm rambling now. Uh, as far as Joseph Antrim goes, there's honestly not that much information. I can find no details on the lynching he prevented other than it happened in Silver City. A few months following that, the story goes that he made a fellow gambler by the name of Joe Silks holster his revolver when things got tense, thus avoiding bloodshed. I couldn't find anything else about that. Uh, the census records as well on Antrim are scant, and thanks to the horrible butchering of his last name and the miscalculations on his birth year, he's a hard man to track. The last census I could find on him, 1920, he's employed as a cook and living in a boarding house in Denver at 1617 Larimer Street. And it's that same boarding house that's listed as Joseph's place of residence a decade later on his death certificate. Now you know I looked up this address on Google Maps because I'm weird like that. And while there's no longer a 1617 Larimer Street, there is a 32-story high-rise at 1625 Larimer called the Barclay Towers, taking up the area where that boarding house used to be. And I gotta admit, the condos there at the Barclay Towers are pretty fancy. But for the minimum price of half a million dollars, I guess they should be. Floor-to-ceiling windows, a 24-hour concierge, heated pool, and a spa, not to mention a fitness center. Now for someone like me, Knowing that I was living somewhere where a guy like Joseph Antrim lived, I would find that pretty cool. Not half a million dollars cool, but still cool. I'm willing to bet, though, that the residents there at Barclay in downtown Denver would have the same reaction to Joseph as did that newspaperman. Who cares? Well, Joseph Antrim, I care, for whatever that's worth. Anyway, just thought I'd chime in and share this little story with you. I know there are a few people who want me to dedicate an entire episode solely to Billy the Kid, and I probably will one day. 
But these lesser-known stories like this are the ones that always capture my imagination the most. Toss in the fact that he lived well into the 20th century, and yeah, my curiosity odometer is in the red. I don't know what it is about that that fascinates me, it just does. The idea of these old-timers, whether they be gamblers like Joseph, or outlaws, or cowboys, or whatever, surviving the Old West and living out their lives in a more modern era, it's just interesting. You know, a handful of that old Lincoln County bunch lived to be old men too. Not that Joseph was one of them, I mean, he wouldn't be involved in the Lincoln County War whatsoever. And, as far as I know, he never rode the Hoodow Trail. But still, since we're on the subject of old-timers, we might as well take a look at some of Billy's pals as well. I mean, why not? What else you gotta do other than listen to me babble for a few more minutes? Let's see, Doc Skurlock didn't die until a year before Joseph in 1929, at the age of 80. I'll be doing an episode on old Doc very shortly. After the Lincoln County War, he settled in Texas and had a whole passel of kids. Ten, I believe. Doc would do a little bit of teaching, a little bit of dabbling in poetry, and zero talking about his wild younger years. Guess he put all that behind him when he left New Mexico. Jose Chavez y Chavez lived till 1924, another guy that deserves his own episode. Chavez drifted for a while after the kid was killed and even took to wearing a badge. But that life caught him back, though. He ended up getting sentenced to a life in the penitentiary. He'd be released after 11 years, however, when he assisted some guards during a riot and the governor pardoned him. That was in 1909, and as far as I know, he lived the rest of his life peacefully. Frank Coe made it all the way to 1931. If you're not familiar with Frank, he was a Lincoln County regulator. Left New Mexico after the war, but came back a few years later and spent the remainder of his days there. Tough old man who, in 1898, shot and killed his teenage daughter's boyfriend. He would later be acquitted of the murder charges. No idea what the kid did to get shot, but when you're dealing with a former regulator's daughter, I'd suggest you tread light. And Frank's cousin George made it to 1941. He lost a finger in that fight at Blazer's Mill with the toughest nails Buckshot Roberts. The fight that cost the lives of both Roberts and Dick Brewer. To live the life that these guys did, to go from that to the paved streets and automobiles and televisions, that just fascinates the hell out of me. It reminds me of that song, The Last Gunfighter Ballad. I know I've quoted it before on this podcast, and don't worry, I won't do it again. I will say, though, check out the Steve Earle version. I personally think that's the best. Link in the show notes. One last thing on old Joseph Antrim. Remember, he died in the year 1930. That's the same year that John Wayne got his first starring role in a movie, The Big Trail, which was a Western. However, judging by the top box office hits that very same year... The public wasn't yet obsessed with all things Wild West like they would be a couple of decades later. At the top 10 movies of 1930, you had some comedies, a couple of war epics, and a prison drama, but no westerns. I'm no film historian, and I may be completely talking out of my ass here, but I'd be interested to hear what they had to say about this and how it correlates, if it does at all, with the lack of interest in some of those old guys like Joseph Antrim. Had American society already shrugged off the hard times of the Old West and just fully embraced the progressive era with the free-willing good times of the 1920s? And if so, did the hard years to follow, you know, the Great Depression, World War II, did that lead to a renewed interest in all things Old West? You know, that cowboy, individualist spirit. I got no idea. I'm, I'm just making this shit up as I go. As you can see, this is a short episode. Hope you won't hold it against me. For further reading, check out the links in the show notes. A lot of good information on aboutbillythekid.com. As always, some good articles on True West Magazine. A few other random bits I found here and there. If you haven't already, please check out my last episode on the notorious train robber, Rube Burrow. The Robin Hood of Alabama. 
Link also in the show notes. Please head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. While you're there, feel free to browse, check out some older episodes. Click on the listen button to find out all the various places you can follow or subscribe to the Wild West Extravaganza. It's free and it's an easy way to stay up to date with new episodes. And hit that button that says books if you're interested in some book recommendations. That's all I've got for this week. Thank all of you who are supporting the Wild West Extravaganza via Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee. It's very much appreciated. As always, please share this podcast with somebody. Help spread the word. Look, I'm trying to quit my day job. Sooner you can get me on Rogan's podcast, the faster I can start doing an episode per week. Am I delusional? Yes. Would that still be cool? Also, yes. Anyway, till next time, adios. Adios.